Well, we're going to continue our series, The Truth Between Us. We've been doing this for several weeks now. Next week will most likely be the last one. After that, I'm going to be going to La Paz with a group uh, from here. But this week we wanted to look at the truth between us and Judaism. And there really is so much truth between us. If you have a Bible with you, if you were to just take and and see how much of the Old Testament is there, you'll see that the majority of our Scripture is actually also the Hebrew Scripture. And, And unlike Catholicism that we talked about last week that kind of came out of Christianity and Protestant movement that came out of the Catholicism, we all came out of Judaism. It is our foundation. It is our history. And the central theme, I guess you would say, or the truth that we have between us is both the Orthodox Jews and the Orthodox Christians, because I have to point out that there are a number of different types of Jews represented in Judaism, just like there are in Christianity or Catholicism. I think that I recently had read that over half the Jews who actually live in Israel actually don't believe in God, but they're, they're Jewish by, you know, tradition, but not in a theological belief. But when we talk about Orthodox Judaism and Orthodox Christianity, one of the central themes we have between us is is that of a messianic promise, that of God's redemptive work taking place for his people, for mankind. And where we would differ is the, the Orthodox Jew is believing the Messiah is still to come and an Orthodox Christian believes that the Messiah has come in Jesus Christ. I don't want to focus on those things. I, I don't want to just talk about the messianic passages, although we are going to talk about that. I think there's a lot more things taking place that we have to connect to and that we have in common that is important to understand. You know, when you look at Judaism and the effect it has had on history, on the religions of the world, including where we come from, it's powerful. Their contribution to history and their involvement in history and humanity overall is pretty incredible. And at the time... When Judaism starts up at the rise, when we we start to see God separating a person, Abraham, for himself and revealing himself to this people, it's taking place at a time where in history there were thousands of gods who were worshipped. And these gods looked a lot like human beings and they had the temperaments sometimes of children who would argue. And people were just like pawns in the game of the gods. And so people would say, oh yeah, we're going through a drought. It's because the gods are angry with us and they're throwing a tantrum or something is going on and this pestilence is there because the gods are doing this. And it was always kind of in relationship to whatever these gods' emotions were at the time. And then 
you come to Judaism and from the beginning in Genesis 1.1, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And we see from the start that Judaism says and has the narrative proclamation that God is the one who we are answerable to, that he is the one who's created the heaven and the earth, and that the world as we know it, the the material world, is actually a sacred trust. It's not something that we are to be detached from, like you would find in Buddhism or even in Hinduism, and strangely enough, now in a lot of ideas in Christianity. But originally the thought was that God has created all things good. And all life is seen in perspective of the reality that God is the one who is responsible for these things. And everything that happens has to be interpreted through the reality of God's existence. And this is a powerful framework that there is just one God who is all-powerful, who is all-knowing, who is all-present, that idea comes from Judaism. That is unique. And that is something that we definitely share in, in common. And remember in Genesis 1, where God created... And after he created, he said, and it was good. And there's another movement of God's creation. And again, it was good. And movement after movement, like an orchestra being played and a symphony that's taking place in in this song that's being proclaimed, it is good, it is good, it, it is good. And so we see that there is an attachment to the creation that has this moral foundation to it. Something can't be good if it doesn't have this idea of right behind it. And I think what has happened is in many ways, we Christians have lost our traditional roots connected to this understanding that we have started to interpret Scripture based on a Western mentality rather than from the Hebrew mindset. Friday night, we had our grassroots, and again, it was just an amazing time. And afterwards, I went out to grab a bite to eat with some people, and we were sitting there talking, and I was talking to this one couple, and I was asking them, why do you think so many people don't come to church or or don't want Christianity as a part of their life? And it was a black couple, and I thought it was real interesting what they said. They said, well, a lot of people see Christianity, at least in the black community, as a European religion. That it's come from a white European, and so they see it as not representing them effectively. And I thought, how strange that Christianity is seen as a white European religion faith. And not only how strange, but how tragic. And you can understand why. If you've seen any Jesus movies out there just about, there might be a few exceptions, but Jesus is the most handsome white guy there is, right? 
He's got blue eyes. He's got flowing locks of hair. He does not look Jewish. Again, and that's in most of the movies or the pictures. You see the pictures of Jesus. He's a hippie. He's a white American hippie. He's just sitting there like that. And and so the representation now has come across that Jesus has this image. And not only the image, but also how people look and interpret the Scripture. You see, Genesis is looked as a scientific journal that we're to go through and dissect to disprove evolution instead of it being a human manifest of of declaration on how to live and an understanding about ourselves and about God. We want to make it a manual of how to do. And in a lot of ways, we've taken out the soul of what the intention was meant to be. And losing those roots, I think we lose something that's important. See, in Judaism, life is sacred because God is the one who created it. And it's a sacred trust because God is the one who has involved us in it. You don't become spiritual once you die. You're to live a sacred life now. And part of your worship is how you conduct your life. That that now is an aspect of your worship. And, and I think Christianity has started to treat life as secondary. Well, you know, this life, it's going to all burn. It's all going to pass away. But one day, we're going to go to heaven. One day, we're going to go from here to there. And that's when our life is really going to begin. Where originally, the idea was God made everything. It was good. It was sacred. And then we were entrusted with these things. But we've even used our communication to try and reach people for the faith with this idea that, you know, if you were to die tonight, do you know for certain that you would go to heaven? And it's as if, All God cares about is what happens to you after you die. That it's not what's happening here that matters. It's what happens after here. And that really is so far from what scriptures declare. You know, we need Jesus after our life. And so a lot of people do that. It's like, okay, I'll have Jesus for afterlife but I'll have Dr. Phil for before life, right? Because I I need him for afterlife, but I need someone to help me now with what I'm going through. And you see, if we detach ourselves from this life as being a sacred trust, if we detach ourselves from the reality that God has created these things and has created them good in his intention and we are part of that, then afterwards becomes something that is connected to right here and now and not separated, detached from these things. And if we were to live a life with that kind of understanding, that kind of intention, that this is something God has entrusted to us, it's important how we live now, then maybe it would, we would have more of an impact to the people around us. Maybe that's why the Jewish people historically have had such 
a prominent and prosperous history is because of how they see life. And not only was the world created sacred, but human beings have a responsibility that God has given that is called choice. And we read about this in the narrative. As we're going through the image last week, we talked about choice, how important it is. And if you have a copy, turn to Genesis chapter 1. We're going to start at verse 26. Then God said, let us make humankind in our image after our likeness so they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the cattle and over all the earth and over all the creatures that move on the earth. And we see God says, let's make mankind in our image so that they can rule. In other words, we're given God's image so that we could have a responsibility Verse 27, God created humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over all the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and every creature that moves on the ground. And so this is before the fall. God creates Mankind in his image and gives man this responsibility. You were created with intention. You were created with a purpose. You were created to accomplish something. You were also created to recreate, to produce. And so our intention was to do this work, to be a part of God's creation. It wasn't something like an afterthought. Well, later on, you know, maybe you can mow the lawn or take care of the garden or do these things. No, it was part of the creation and the intention. It is sacred to be fruitful and multiply. It is sacred to care for God's creation. It is a responsibility that we have been entrusted with. It's not just to worship God. Living your life is supposed to be an act of worship in the things that you do. And you see, what happened or what is happening is a lot of Christians now think that your purpose was just to worship God. And so now mission, it gets said this way, mission exists because worship doesn't. Because there is no worship, there has to be mission so that you can go out and proclaim this news so that other people can worship. But the Hebrew mindset and the scriptures declare that you were created in the image of God to not just worship, but to live a life ruling over the creation that God has created that was good, that is sacred. And by doing that and pre recreating, producing other children. By doing that, you are in obedience to God, living your life here, now, and how you live. So you were created with a sacred purpose and intention. The image of God is how you live out that life. The things that you do. And it's important because the image of God is not physical characteristics because 
God is spirit. The, the Jewish mind doesn't believe God has a, a body. He is spirit. But the characteristics and what we look like God are his essence and his nature. And if you go to chapter 2 of Genesis, verse 7, we, we see a little bit more that the Lord God formed the man from the soil of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. And this idea of a living being is different than the other things that God created that were alive. This now bears an image of God and it's seen in how man lives. And Hebrew it has two things that are called. One is called the Yetzer Hatav and the other is the Yetzer Hara. The Yetzer Tav is about the knowledge of right and wrong. It's God has created us with this understanding of what is right and what is wrong. That we all have this voice. Now, granted, there are some people who you wonder if they listen to that voice at all, but the idea is humanity has been given this divine narrative, the voice of God that is speaking to humanity as a whole about what is right and wrong. And so you see in every society, there are similarities to stop this kind of rampant murder and abuse. And of course, there are people who try and take advantage of things and still gain power, but then it's measured by what is right and what is wrong. Well, it's wrong to betray your friends. No society thinks it's a good thing. Now they can twist it and say, well, if I can get something out of it, then I'll use it to my advantage. But no one thinks it's good to abuse children. Oh yeah, there are people that do. But all societies look at that overall as a whole and say, these things are bad. What is that? That's the tav, the, the consciousness of God that gives us an understanding of right and wrong. But then there's the hurrah, which is the desires. And the hurrah is what can lead to the evil things. The hurrah is the desires that we all have. They're natural to eat, to drink, to procreate. And those are the things that can take us from just doing what is right to now moving to a place where you're fulfilling just your desire. But they're not wrong in themselves. They were both created good. The voice, the consciousness of what is right and what is wrong, having that conscience and the hurrah, the drive. You see, if you didn't have a hunger drive, you would starve to death. And so it's good to have the drive, but it's not good to be a glutton. It's good to desire to prosper and to take care of your family, but it's not good to be greedy. It's good to want intimacy and love and to procreate, but it's not good to be immoral. And so what's taking place is we are having to make a choice on how we live and what we do with the Tav, the voice that's been given to us and how we control the hurrah, the, the drive that takes place. See, the truth between us and Judaism are the Torah, the first five books. 
They believe that the first five books were given by God and to be kind of a, a guideline for how they should live. And we believe that. They believe the other scriptures as well, but the Torah is very sacred to them and very special. And what we find in these first five books is illuminating. Turn with me to chapter 2, verse 15 to 17. We'll go a little further down. Because we see here, and I will put hostility between you and the woman. Between, hold on a second. Between your offspring and her offspring. Her offspring will attack your head and you will attack her offspring's heel. And what we find here is the first messianic prophecy. The understanding, the central belief of Judaism is that God gave us the freedom to choose. But he also deals with the responsibility of our choices. And so when Adam and Eve partook of the fruit that they weren't supposed to, when they ate and the curse came upon them, God immediately sets up this idea of establishing a way out. God, who is the creator of all things, the material world, a sacred trust, that we are created in his image with the capacity to perceive and to choose. What sets us apart from all creation is that we have the capacity to make moral choices and to choose the good or the evil. And God has put us in an environment where he will not violate this sacred trust. We become more Hebrew, in a sense, in our worldview when we understand that we have been created with free will and have the capacity to choose between the right and the wrong. And you see, with that understanding comes the capacity to perceive what God is doing. In chapter 3 of Genesis, we're just going to stay in Genesis for the most part, We'll just go verse by verse through the whole thing. Wait a second. I, I read the wrong verses, didn't I? Yes, I did. Why didn't you say anything? You guys are just being quiet there. The, let me read those verses again. I'm thinking, man, I jumped something here. The Lord God took the man, placed him in the orchard at Eden, and cared for it to maintain it. Then the Lord God commanded the man, you may freely eat fruit from every tree of the orchard, but you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from that, you will surely die. Notice that the first thing God says is that you can freely eat. The ability to choose what is right and what is wrong is what sets us apart. It's what makes the difference. And now in chapter 3, <laughs> honest, chapter 3, verse 8, we see something, well, I don't have it there, so don't look at that one. Chapter 3, verse 8, we see, Then the man and his wife, after they had taken the fruit, heard the sound of the Lord God moving about in the orchard at the breezy time of day, and they hid themselves from the Lord God among the trees of the orchard. They heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden. What does that sound like? I have a feeling it doesn't sound like you or I walking in the garden. 
It's see, they had the ability to perceive God was there. And having an understanding that God is there is an important part of who we are, the ability to perceive God, to understand Him. And this is an important part both of Judaism and Christianity, is the understanding and the recognition that the Spirit of God is able to minister to us. And we do see that taking place with Moses in chapter 33 of Exodus. There, we got out of Genesis. Just for a little bit, we're going to go back. But in Genesis, Exodus 33, verse 12, we see God is having a conversation with Moses, and it's very illuminating. This dynamic that is taking place, it says, Moses said to the Lord, See, you have been saying to me, bring this people up, but you have not let me know who you will send with me. But you said, I know you by name, and also you have found favor in my sight. Now, if I have found favor in your sight, show me your way that I might know you, that I may continue to find favor in your sight and see that this nation is your people. And so Moses says, God, if I really am called by you, show me your way. And this is one of the things that is important in Judaism is that God would reveal his way through his laws to his people. So God, show me your way. But look at God's response to that. And the Lord said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Does anyone else read that and say, that's not what I asked? I asked you to show me your way, and God says, my presence will be with you, and that will give you rest. And what I love is what Moses does. Moses doesn't say, oh, that wasn't what I was asking. Let me tell you again in case you misunderstood me. Moses perceives what is taking place. In verse 15, and Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, Do not take us up from here. For how will it be known then that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not by you going with us so that they will be distinguished, so that we will be distinguished, I and your people, from all the people who are on the face of the earth? So Moses says, okay, if it's your presence, then let your presence be known. Let it be with us. I need to know that you are here with me. And God says in verse 17, then the Lord said to Moses, I will do this thing also that you have requested for you have found favor in my sight and I know you by name. And we see this intimacy that takes place with God and and Moses where, where Moses is the chief prophet of the Jewish people because he had the ability to understand and hear from God and then to engage with God so that God would talk with him as a person talks with their friend face to face. And after God says, okay, I will be with you, Moses goes and steps further and Moses said, show me your glory. I, I, I want to know that you are with me. I, I perceive that you are here. I would need the people of the world to perceive that you are with us and I want to see your glory. I want to know you deeply. I want to know you intimately. I want to understand you completely. God, show me your way. And God says, my presence will go with you. 
I'll give you rest. Moses adjusts and he goes, okay, then I want your presence to be known. And God says, it will be. And then Moses steps in further and he says, show me your glory. See, the narrative of Judaism is that we live this life drenched in the presence of God. That we walk with the presence of God around us. And if we are close, then he will actually allow us to see how glorious his presence is. And think about that. Think of Jesus' words. I will never leave you. Behold, I am with you always. That the kingdom of God is within you. You see, the, the truth is that the presence of God was meant to be something they lived in daily, not that they would go and die and find later on. It was supposed to be a reality in their life. And then Jesus comes and he says, the kingdom of God, it's among you. It's here with you. I will not leave you. I am here present with you. You go through the book of Acts and you have the spirit pouring out on the people, fulfilling what God's intention was all along, that we'd be aware of his presence, that we would know what is right and what is wrong. And our desires would be a choice to choose to live with God and follow after him and to walk with him in understanding that he is here with us right now, that we are aware that the creator of the universe who has made everything, who said it was good, has now put us in a place where we are to take this as our responsibility. We are to be stewards over the creation so that we can represent God in how we live. And this life itself becomes an act of worship. And so Paul could quote the pagan philosophers and say, in him we live and move and have our being. That's exactly what we saw taking place with Moses. Your presence is here with us. And you see, the truth between us is the reality that God has made this world, it is good, and he has put us here to be involved with it and to make the right choices in it and to walk with him through it. Where you go, I go. When you stop, I stop. What your heart desires, my heart desires. You see, unlike any other religion, the truth between Judaism and Christianity is a God who is intimately involved with his creation. That's why the psalmist says, your love, O Lord, is better than life. Who says that about a God? Only a God who cares and is involved with his creation, which is exactly what we see. God, I want to see you wonderfully. I want to see you beautifully. I want to see you entirely in my life. I want to be aware of your presence. I want to have that understanding. I am not just 
a created being. I am a created being created in your image to walk with you and take responsibilities that you have entrusted to me. That's how we bear his image. You see, but the problem of the human condition, the problems that we struggle with are in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. I read to you there already, but we're going to have to read it again. I'm sorry. Because we, we see here that messianic promise that because of the fall, because of the, the relationship being broken and now it being difficult to hear that voice, more difficult to understand that conscious right and wrong sometimes and harder to make all the right choices, God, at the very beginning, brings in the idea of redemption. Where the woman seed would crush the head of the serpent and the serpent would bruise his heel. And down in verse 21, it says, The Lord God made garments from skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And so here we see from the very beginning that a sacrifice was made to cover their sin. And we start to see that this is something that is going to be taking place. Throughout these five books, there is the idea of sacrifice. It's seen probably more fully in chapter 22, and we got to turn there because this is so important to this narrative. In chapter 22 of Genesis, starting at verse 1, we see that there's an illustration, and you guys are familiar with this story. It says, Sometime after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, here I'm. I am, Abraham replied. God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah. Offer him up there as a burnt offering on the mountains, which I will indicate to you. Early in the morning, Abraham got up and saddled his donkey. He took two of his young servants with him, along with his son, Isaac. When he had cut the wood for the burnt offering, he started out for the place God had spoken to him about. On the third day, Abraham caught sight of the place in the distance. So he said to his servants, you two stay here with the donkey while the boy and I go up there. We will worship and then return to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and put it on his son Isaac. Then he took the fire and the knife in his hand, and the two of them walked on together. Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father, what is it, my son? He replied, Here is the fire and the wood, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. Abraham replied, the two of them continued together. When they came to the place God had told him about, Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood on it. Next, he tied up his son Isaac and placed him on the altar on the top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand, took the knife, and prepared to slaughter his son. But the Lord's angel called to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he answered. 
Do not harm the boy, the angel said. Do not do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God because you did not withhold your son, your only son, from me. Abraham looked up and saw behind him a ram caught in the bushes by its horns. So he went over and got the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of that place The Lord provides. It is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, provision will be made. You see, from the animal sacrifice that took place to cover the sin of Adam and Eve, to this sacrifice going to take place of his son Isaac, to Egypt and and the the Passover, the slaughter of the lamb that covered the the doorpost that would spare the innocents, the firstborn of those who were under this blood, we see that sacrifice is an important part of this understanding that for forgiveness to take place, it is going to cost something. But we see in this story that God will himself provide that. And when you see and read this story, you're like horrified. Oh my gosh, you're going to kill your son. It's meant to horrify you because it is a horrifying thing that is taking place. And you would say, what kind of God would make you sacrifice your own son? The answer is not this one. This one will not require you to sacrifice your son. He instead will give his son. And just like those first animals were sacrificed, the Lord provided, God has provided again, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You see, the the truth between us is we recognize the cost of sin and that it needs a sacrifice and that saying you're sorry doesn't deal with the situation that we're in. It takes blood. But God's not going to require your blood. He will provide his own. You see, really, these first five books, we, we get the story. And even in these first three chapters, we get the story. And the rest is really just commentary. It just helps give more illustration. It helps give more illumination. But God sets in motion his whole story in those first three chapters from giving man his image, responsibility, to man making the wrong choice, to God covering man with those animals that he himself sacrificed. In that, everything just starts to become clearer and clearer as the story unfolds. And it's a difficult thing from a Hebrew mind. When you talk about Messiah, you're talking about an anointed one. You're talking about a king. And the idea is that this Messiah is going to restore his people. And Paul talks about this a lot in the book of Romans. The restoration of all things in the Hebrew mind is God establishing his people to again have the voice to the world. He told Abraham, through you all the nations of the world will be blessed. And so restoration is when we will be able to bless all the nations. But then there are these other troubling passages like in Isaiah where it talks about a suffering Messiah. 
And so how do we put these two together? And you see, we believe that they are put together just amazingly in the person of Jesus. You you don't have to wait till you as a nation are restored. You're restored in the person of Jesus. The Messiah did suffer, but he also conquered that suffering by rising again from the dead. Even as Ezekiel talks about the resurrection, the bones coming back together, God has fulfilled that in the person of Jesus Christ. And he's done it masterfully. He's done it beautifully. And what we need to understand, though, is we are not separate from the Jewish people. We are born from them. Paul says we are grafted in to that vine. And it's from there that we come up. And I say this because there's been a lot of harm done to the Jewish people in the name of Jesus. And so it's with good reason that they hear and see Christians as a person to be cautious with, as in some cases even an enemy, because that has been the case in the past. But we need to understand and present ourselves in a way that the God of Abraham, the God of Jacob, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob is who we are indebted to. It's where we come from. It is through them that the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world has been provided. And we have hope because of what God has promised through them to us. And I hope we can learn from this, their story, how to live more fully and clearly and see that it's also our story. Because the first church was primarily Jewish. The Messiah is Jewish. The disciples were Jewish. And then they reached the world just as was promised to Abraham. But this is our foundation. And so there is so much truth between us. Sometimes it's difficult to tell. Where does this leave off and and where do we start? Because sometimes they still are connected. The same God who did these things is the God we believe in. He didn't do something else and he didn't stop doing what he did there. We just see the promises given now being fulfilled in the person of Jesus. And so God has done something and it's just like God to redefine how we would think of majesty, to to redefine what it means to be victorious. And, And instead of it just being done with something with might and power, it's, doing, it's been done through servitude 
and sacrifice. And then that becomes our example that we would take the responsibility to be stewards that we were promised long ago for the world and for the human race. Because we move where he moves. We stop where he stops. We speak what he says. Because we are created in his image. Let's pray. God, there is so much more that can be said. There is so much depth into this narrative that you've given us in the scripture. And Lord, even as we have primarily focused on these first books in the Torah, Lord, they resonate to us so much. And Lord, I pray that we would be aware of your presence, that we would walk in it. Lord, that we would take the responsibility that you have given to humanity. And Lord, that we would not come across as arrogant to those who would be of our our Jewish friends and family and, and their beliefs, that we would come across appreciative. Lord, that we would recognize there is a lot that we have learned and can learn from the Jewish people. And so may we come with humility and an attitude of servants and not an attitude of of we know better. And help us to be the, the people that erase the injustices that have been done in your name, God, that are still being done in your name. God, may we be the people that extend your love, compassion, and mercy to our descendants where we come from, to the Jewish people. I thank you, God, for the sacrifice that you have offered for us. And I don't want to close without bringing an opportunity for you also to respond to the sacrifice. God has done what is necessary and has provided what is necessary for you and for I to be right with him. It's no longer about how good you can be. It's about how good he is. So this morning, if you find yourself in a position where you you need this presence of God in your life. You, you have a discernment of what's right and what's wrong, but maybe you've made wrong choices. Your desires have taken you down the wrong path and you want to be right. Well, there is a God who has made the sacrifice who will, will cover you, who will hide your shame, who will not require you to make the sacrifice, but will provide himself that sacrifice if you're here this morning and you desire that to cover your life would you raise your hand i just want to pray for you god bless you god bless you lord you see the hands that are here that are acknowledging to you we need your mercy we need your grace and we are grateful that it has come 
through your Messiah, Jesus. Lord, restore our lives. We pray and ask in your name. Amen.